Good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you this morning and uh, to gather together. Man, what a thing to sing together, to proclaim as one, my heart and my flesh may fail, but you are, you're it for me. You're my portion. You're my reward. Uh, he is. He's, he's what we need. He is, he is what we are all about. Here's, he's why we gather. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is, uh, is what we need. Well, as, we, uh, as you may notice, that we're getting closer to Easter, and in the book of Luke, we're drawing closer to the cross. Uh, it's been a long time coming in the book of Luke, and then this morning, we're getting toward the end of chapter 22, and we, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which uh, is, is actually, I think, the, the image behind uh, the, the last several weeks of going through Luke. You can see it on the title side. There's, there's Jesus praying. And there's his disciples not praying, uh, dozing. Um, but uh, thanks, Courtney, for, for making these images for us all the time. And, uh, but, but we're gonna dig in uh, to this passage together so, so you can follow along with us in chapter 22. Well, a common, a common scene in superhero movies is, is that moment where the hero is defeated or perhaps even just reduced to becoming a mere mortal. You, you, you remember Thor, without his hammer... He's, he's just a dude. Uh, it's, it's Lex Luthor placing the kryptonite necklace on Superman. And, and sometimes we also have seen, we see real, real life examples of this. I've talked to a lot of men who they can recall and point to the first time that they saw their father cry. The first time you saw someone that you really looked up to, really, really admired, an older brother, a leader, a pastor, a, a parent, uh, who, who for the first time you, you see, man, they had always been strong. They had always had it all together, but eventually they, they faltered, they stumbled, uh, they even broke down. And when we see this, this, this person that we think is supposed to be unflappable, crumpled on the floor, it's, it's a shock to us. It's disorienting to see our heroes staggered. Uh, maybe, maybe in some ways it's a relief to go, they're made of the same stuff that I am. So, so what happens when we see the son of God, the confounder of the Pharisees, the healer, the creator, and now here he is weak and crumpled on the ground. Today's passage is a glimpse into perhaps probably one of the most raw and heartbreaking moments of Christ's incarnation. There may be no other passage in the Bible where we see the human frailty of our incarnate Lord more clearly. Our savior, our king, emotionally broken, and spent. So, so how should this make us feel? Is, is it a comfort? Is, is it a terror? Why, why does he respond in this way? Why is he, why is he acting this way? And, and what does this show us about our own suffering? And so as, as we look at Jesus in the garden today, I, I want us to see, we're gonna see three realities about our savior. And then lastly, we're gonna end with the, the final point, which will be, what, what does this mean for us? So, Number one, we're gonna see the surprise of his distress. Number two, the agony of his cup. Number three, the beauty of his obedience. And lastly, we'll see he's a savior for our suffering. So would you join with me? Let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him for help today. Just right where you are, I would invite you, uh, pray for yourself. Pray that the Lord, maybe you've not talked to the Lord in, in a long time. 
Maybe you've not prayed and, and spoken to him. So I just think, just in your own heart right now, ask the Lord to help you that, you, that he would help you hear his word, that he would remove distractions so that you might hear and to believe what his word says. Would you pray now for, for others in our church family? Maybe, maybe those who are sitting near you or those who, who would hear God's word this morning and hear the message. God, would you ask that, that God would uh, speak to us as a church family, that we would hear what we should and believe? Lastly, will you, will you pray for me uh, that I would get out of the way and that he would speak to us, uh, that, it, that it wouldn't be my thoughts or ideas, but it would be uh, the Holy Spirit that would speak to us by his word. Lord, we are a needy people. We, we are weak. And we come to you with, and we bring our lives and we, we, we even forget our own weakness. But Lord, together we, we, we come to you this morning saying, we need something from you. We need your strength. We need your help. We need the gospel. So Lord, would you help us? Would you draw us by your spirit? Would you help us to come ready to your word? And would you change us? Lord, we lift up our sister, Jessica Gann. God, we ask that you would be with her today, that she would feel your presence strongly, that she would know you're with her. She wouldn't feel alone. And Lord, that you would use her and her team to bring much glory to your name. Lord, that they would see many Japanese people trust in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that Christ would be lifted high in Japan. So Lord, be with us now. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we begin with number one, the surprise of his distress. Starting there in verse 39, just as we read a moment ago, uh, let's, let's begin reading there. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. 
So as, as Jesus walks with his close friends uh, to this place, remember, since, he's, since they've come back into Jerusalem about uh, earlier in the week, this is where they've gone each, each night. So Jesus is teaching in the temple during the day, and then they, they retreat back to the Mount of Olives at night. And this specific spot, which we know from the other gospel accounts, is, is called the, the Garden of Gethsemane which is really more like a cluster of olive trees uh, where, where they could harvest and press the olives. Uh, but, but this night is anything but normal. Uh, it, it's, I, I'm sure they all felt it. In fact, we've been seeing it unfold. They've just eaten this Passover meal. Judas, at, at the end of the meal, Judas storms out after being revealed as, as the one who would betray Jesus. And then we see Peter pledging, I'm, I'm with you. All the way to the death, I'm with you, Jesus. But of course, Jesus actually corrects him and says, actually, before the night's up, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. It's probably an ominous night. Emotions frayed, emotions high. But, but it seems as they get closer to the spot that something's beginning to ramp up where Jesus is about to get alone to pray. And I think we see in this scene, this is kind of a bookend to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, an hour or two after this, Jesus is gonna be arrested. Before the sun is even up, trials will be going on. Uh, there'll be no more healings, no more lessons in the synagogue, uh, no more traveling crowds, no more parables. This is the end of the ministry of Jesus, the earthly ministry of Jesus. So, so I want you to think back to how his earthly ministry started. Back at the beginning of Luke, what are, what are the first moments that we see in his ministry? Uh, it, we see the father, right? As he steps out into the baptismal waters, what is the first thing that Jesus hears? He hears the voice of his father saying, you're my son whom I love. You're my beloved son. And he goes from that moment of hearing the father's voice and he immediately goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And Satan tempts him for 40 days. And I think kind of the general theme of Satan's temptations are, you're the son of God. What? You don't need to suffer. In fact, you can throw yourself off this temple and, and the angels will catch you. Your father won't let your foot strike a stone. But of course, Jesus is steadfast. He refuses these temptations. He, he knows the mission that's in front of him and he's committed to it. And so we move from there and he moves down back and he goes into ministry and he draws men to himself. He calls them, he calls his disciples. He builds this community uh, uh, that he's going to minister with over the next several years. And this, this will be his, his closest brothers and his companions as he ministers. And so if those, that's kind of the front bookend. Then this, I think this scene actually serves as the kind of the back bookend because it, it's like he's experiencing each of those things, but now in reverse, we see his, his friends, they had walked with him through all of these things, through so much of his ministry. But now what happens with his friends in this scene? He leaves them behind. He leaves them behind because he's gonna go, he's got a path he has to walk. He has to walk a path alone. And of course, he tells them to pray. But what do we see them do? They see them fall asleep. And then what, what, is, what happens as Jesus goes into the garden to pray? He's gonna be faced with temptation a similar temptation, the temptation to avoid pain, to pull the ripcord on the mission, to say, I'm out. And then lastly, he's gonna deal with the father. And though his ministry had begun with the father communicating his great love for the son, Jesus, as he, as he steps forward in the mission, as he passes the test of the temptation, 
he'll now come to grips not with the love of his father, but he'll hear the silence of his father and the weight of the coming wrath of his father. So now as they walk into this spot to pray, something begins to come over Jesus. He, he leaves most of the disciples behind him. Actually, Matthew and, and Mark's accounts let, let us know that he actually takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further, uh, that he, he takes them with him. This is his three closest friends. And, and Jesus even tells these three friends in Matthew 26, he says, my soul is grieved to the point of death. Something is coming over him. He's overwhelmed. Mark, Mark uses uh, this, this word, ekthambeo, uh, which... which really is, it's translated as distressed, but it has more of an urgent feel, like a sudden frightening feel. Jesus is alarmed by something. He's, he's, he's feeling a, a, a sudden terror. Many in church history have, have tried to explain away these emotions that Jesus feels. He's saying, well, he, he only started feeling that way. He didn't like progress with those feelings. And, or maybe, he, maybe even so much as to say, he just appeared to feel that way. He, was, he didn't really feel that way. Uh, but this, this seems to go against the very testimony of scripture. Like this wasn't performative pain on the part of Jesus. I think people who do that sort of thing, who want to explain it away, they do so because to think of Jesus experiencing such psychological distress, like it just doesn't compute with our brains when we know of his divinity. And so, so it's maybe easier for some to just think, well, then maybe when he cries out on the cross here in just a couple of chapters, when he's crying out on the cross, it must just simply be not that he's saying, truly thinking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It must be that he's just quoting Psalm 22 as a, as a means of teaching, not because he's experiencing pain, not because he's actually feeling forsaken. And, and it, even if it, it, that seems absurd, I think you could see how some would go, man, I, I just, I don't want to think of Jesus as being that vulnerable. I, I don't, I, he's God. I, he can't, how can he feel this way? But I think a couple things in the text just destroy such a view. First, he has no audience here. There's no crowd that he's performing for. Only his closest friends there in Matthew's Gospels, Gospels where he says, I'm grieved to the point of the death. And later, when he's praying, he's alone. He's, he's crying out in anguish all alone. This is not a performance. And second, I, I think it's, it's clearly in the, in the scriptures, theologically inaccurate, to portray Jesus as someone, uh, simply a divine being with no human emotion. Yes, he is fully God, but he is also fully man. In fact, Hebrews 2 says, this is what uniquely qualifies him as the only perfect sacrifice for sinners. Hebrews 2 says this, says he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus became like us in every way, not to the point of sin, but in that he felt things that we feel. Jesus didn't theoretically suffer anguish no, as a human, he truly felt the weight of our fears, felt the weight of our depression, our loneliness. He wasn't above human pain, psychological or otherwise. 
And perhaps this scene with Jesus drives home this reality more than any other scene. But it does beg the question, like, like why? Why now? Why suddenly is Jesus feeling this way? Like he has spoken his whole ministry about this moment. He, he's known his death was coming for him. But, but he's never expressed this sort of agony. In fact, I would say his whole ministry has been marked by a, a kind of inflap, unflappability of sorts. No, no opposition has, seems to face him, whether it's a demon, a Pharisee, or both. And yet as the moment draws near, he's distressed. He's in agony. And I think you could, you could say, well, it's, it's probably just because it's getting closer. And certainly that's part of it. It's, it's getting near. His suffering is close now. That, that is part of it. I mean, I think Calvin says any of us would have, would have been in anguish in this moment uh, as, as near as death was. But I think the text shows us it's even more than the nearness of death. What is weighing so heavily on Jesus? I think we find the answer in his prayer. This leads us to our, our second point, the agony of his cup. <clears throat> Look at verse 41. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, which as a side note, I think is really funny that Luke measures things in stone's throws. I, I thought that was just Texans, but like, I, I, I thought surely this is just some sort of like translated phrase. It's really not. Like, this is actually uh, the words, this is how Luke was measuring, which is not a very good form of measurement, I would say. Like, I, can, I can throw a lot farther than my grandma, so who's throwing like the stone? How are we measuring? But Neither here nor there. Um, back, to, back to the action. Uh, therefore, he, he, then he, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. So Jesus moves away from his friends. Mark even says he falls to the ground. And then he prays this in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Father, I don't want to die. No, he says, Father, take this cup. And he prays this prayer again and again. In fact, Luke is the most abridged version of this account. Uh, the other accounts show us that he asked, actually came back and asked three times. Mark says he uses the, the tender Aramaic phrase, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. So what's, what's causing his distress? It's the cup. Take this cup. Take the cup away from me, he says. And when we hear this phrase, the cup, we, we should immediately hear a, a reference to the wrath of God. Jesus knows his Old Testament. He, he knows what the cup is. The Psalms and the prophets uh, refer to the cup, the cup as, as God's fury. The, the cup of, it's his cup of suffering. Psalm chapter 75 says this, for there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink it, draining it to the dregs. What a picture. Isaiah 51. The prophet speaks of this cup of this fury from the Lord's hands, the cup that causes people to stagger. And then the prophet Jeremiah, these are, these are God's words through the prophet. 
It says, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to who I'm sending you drink from it. They will drink, stagger, and go out of their minds because of the sword I'm sending among them. Make no mistake, like the cup imagery is terrifying. Like we all know what it's like to drink something that's a little bit too hot. Like you drank it and you're like, oh man, it's gonna hurt for the next couple minutes. Uh, it burns all the way down. But, but what a visceral image the scriptures are painting here to think of being made to drink something so painful and so devastating as wrath and judgment. A poison drink from God that will destroy whoever drinks of it. And it's more, it's more than just a physical death. What is wrath reserved for? The prophet Nahum says, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Romans says God's wrath is upon the ungodly, upon the unrighteous. God cannot abide with sin, so his wrath must be poured out on it. But the wrath of God isn't simply, it's not simply the presence of pain and judgment. Wrath is, is the lack of something good. It's the lack of the presence of a loving father. It's the lack of God's presence. And here is the perfect son of God. Loved by the father, Jesus has known nothing but the uninterrupted fellowship with his father. That's, that's all he's known with his father, uninterrupted from eternity past. And now in his frailty as a human being, he trembles not at the prospect of death, but in the face of losing fellowship with his father. The prospect of that fellowship being broken. In, in preparing this week, I, I, was, I, I, I wanted to go see what Tim Keller said and he immediately points to Jonathan Edwards. He, he, and it's a Jonathan Edwards sermon I'd never, I'd never come across. And Edwards is, uh, if you've read Edwards, it's thick. Uh, he writes in a pretty, uh, just a very descriptive way. Um, but he, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon about this moment about Gethsemane called Christ's Agony. And, and Edward's description of the agony that Christ was experiencing here is, it was amazing. It's astonishing. Uh, it's quite a thing. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for something maybe to fall asleep to, it's maybe, it might be that hard to get through too. So, um, <clears throat> but it's also, maybe, maybe, maybe you wouldn't, maybe you'd also just be overwhelmed by it. But here's a little taste. He says this, some have inquired, what was the occasion of that distress and agony? And many speculations there have been about it. But the scripture itself does not leave room for speculation or doubt. The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was without a doubt, or without doubt, the same with that which his mouth was so full of. It was the dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. When he had a full sight given him what that wrath of God was that he was to suffer, the sight was overwhelming to him. It made his soul exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Imagine what Jesus is now realizing. As he is face to face with this cup that he is uh, to drink, 
Imagine the inner emotional battle that is raging within him. He knows what the cup means. He's staring into the oncoming fury of God. He knows what it will require of him. He knows the loss he'll have to endure. And he's, he's overwhelmed. And so he cries out. He cries out to his father. He wants a rescue. Take this cup, father. Take it from me. And his turmoil goes on. We see in verse 43 and 44 that there, uh, then an angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him. And which sounds a lot like his testing in the wilderness, doesn't it? When Satan tempts him, angels come to minister. And then in verse 44, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Some, some manuscripts omit those two, verse 43 and 44. Um, I, I tend to think the evidence suggests that they should actually be there. They really are part of Luke's text. Um, but, but there were scribal traditions that really did not like to see Jesus like this. This, this language, Christ's anguish, it's, it's, it's actually a word that's not used anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. It's a word that outside of the, of the scriptures is used to describe like wrestling, like, a, like, a, like combat, a struggle. And gee, that's what's happening inside Jesus. There's, there's an inner wrestling match going on. It's, it's a battle. It's, it's so severe that Luke, who's, who's a doctor, he's the only one who tells us that Christ's sweat is like drops of blood. Now, commentators disagree on as to whether or not this is a metaphor or this is actually like bloody sweat. Um, there is a medical reality that, that, that one under so much strain that the blood vessels can burst and someone can actually sweat blood. So it's, it's a possibility that this is truly what's happening. This would match the sort of strain that Christ is under. To be the object of the wrath of his father has buckled Christ. The prospect of such pain and relational brokenness with his father, of soon bearing the curse of sin, has caused sudden inner turmoil. And to add pain to the moment, we see Jesus actually go out and, and speak to his friends. And, and it seems as though maybe he's going to them for, for encouragement, for comfort. And what does he find? They're, they're asleep. They're asleep. It's a heavy moment for Jesus. But in the terror of this moment, it's, it's the next part of Christ's prayer where, where I think we see beauty. Number three, the beauty of his obedience. So Jesus, he's praying for another option, but no answer comes. We, we might expect this to sink Jesus even lower but what we see instead is something amazing. We see the resolve of Christ. See, unlike an actual lamb who's led to the slaughter unknowingly, this lamb doesn't know where he's going. Jesus knew exactly what was in store. Jesus, the lamb of God, knew the judgment that was to come. And what did he choose? His choice was to accept it. I think this, this point is key. You see, Christ, Christ is not a pawn in a terrible experiment here. He was not a prisoner. He was not overpowered. No, Jesus Christ, the all-powerful king of the universe, fully man, 
but still fully God. Though he could have saved himself, he submits willingly to the plan of redemption. This is why Jesus said, said it this way in John chapter 10. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I do it. In verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. And so we see the beauty of this Gethsemane moment where Jesus stares into the coming wrath and he had the power to say no. But instead, he says, yes, I will go. Though it is dreadful, I am committed to the plan and I will give myself, I will lay myself down. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's resolute. Edwards, again, explains this so beautifully in that same sermon. He says, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath. And it was not a proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfold as not knowing how dreadful the, the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This is our savior. He stared, he stared headlong into the freight train of God's coming wrath, the only one to never deserve it. And though the thought of such suffering gave him great anguish, he was not tied to the tracks. No, Jesus looked at the tracks and he saw you and me tied there, bound by our own sin. And because of his great love, as the train drew near, he laid himself on the tracks in our place, taking our destruction on himself and setting us free when he rose from the dead. The son drank the cup. He drank it for you. He drank it for me. Oh, what a beautiful obedience. What good news. This, this, is, this is the gospel. This is the, the, the fancy Christian word that we use, substitutionary atonement. This is one, that's one of the great triumphs of Christ's cross and a great theme in all of scripture. Christ, our substitute in our place for our sin. Greater love has no man than this. And then he would lay down his life for his friends. Christ was no unwitting participant. He went willingly to the cross for you and for me. He went to the cross for his friends who were sleeping a stone's throw away. He went to the cross for friends who gathered today in, in Dubai and in Japan and in Thailand and in Tomball. He went to the cross for liars, for the proud. He went for people pleasers, for porn users, for gluttons. The Savior was willing to endure wrath for all those across all time who would trust in his atoning death and his resurrection. 
And now, because he is willing, because he was so willing to be obedient, to walk this road, guess what? His obedience becomes ours. He did the very thing we could not do and we receive the benefit. Isn't that amazing? Now we, we could probably just like stop right there and just sing. Like, cause that'd probably be, that'd probably be good enough. I do have one more point um, and we're gonna do it. So we'll wait, we'll sing in just a second. Um, but but I, I, wanna, I just wanna say right here, maybe you're here today and you've never known love like that. You've had no idea that God himself would die for you. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, that he would lay himself down in your place. This is, this is what Jesus did. And he didn't do it just to be nice. He didn't do it just to show you a good example for how to live. He did it so your sins could be forgiven. So that you wouldn't have to drown in regret and shame. He did it so you could be free. You can really be free because of Jesus. He did it so that you could know the sort of fellowship with the Father that he does. And maybe, maybe that's you today. Maybe you've, maybe you've never even thought, man, I, I could be free of these things in my life. I could be forgiven. I could be loved. But you can. None are beyond his reach. Turn to Jesus today. If, that, if that's you, like come, come find one of us. We, we, we'll have a prayer time later in the service. Come and pray with one of us. Come find one of us. We'd love to talk to you about it. All of us needed that. We all needed Jesus in our place. So if you've never believed, look to him today. Look at what he's done for you. If you're, if you're a believer, I think there are so many implications from this text that I, that I just want to name a few for us um, as, we, as we wrap up, which is our final point. He's a savior for our suffering. So I just want to give you five implications um, from what we see here of Christ. Implication number one, it's okay to be weak. This was actually a lot of last week's sermon that Jesus shows us in this scene, he shows us that godliness does, does not always look like stoicism. A few years ago, I, I went through some, some difficult physical trials. I had a, a surgery and, and things were really difficult. I ended up in the hospital for a while. Uh, a lot of, lot of uh, physical pain uh, that I wasn't sure if it was gonna resolve. And, and I, I remember just being broken down by it crying and asking God for help, but, but also feeling like very defeated. And, and I, rem, I remember being really frustrated with myself. Like really discouraged. Like, why am I so heartbroken? Why, why am I faltering? There were a group of people in the church that got together and prayed for me. And I, had a, I, was, I had a compu- was able to watch on my computer and listen to their prayers. And, and there were times where I would just turn this computer screen away. I was like, nobody wants to watch me cry. Like, I, what, what's wrong with me, I thought. Why am I not more unshakable? I'm a pastor for crying out loud. What's going on? When we face the most awful things in this life, when you suffer greatly, and some, some of you have, and some of you are right now. 
When your heart is broken by relational trauma and brokenness, when your spirit is breaking by, by the latest report from the doctor, in that very moment of distress, what is it that we need? I would contend that we do not need a stoic, emotionless savior, undaunted by pain. No, we need a savior who knows our distress. One who knows emotional turmoil and trauma and who will sit with us in our pain. A savior who welcomes weakness, who doesn't turn away from our laments. This is Jesus. This is who he is. Hebrews 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus felt it in his bones, the weight of human frailty. And he is with us now. When you suffer, he's there. Maybe you you suffer from anxiety or depression. Know this, if that's you, you have a savior who knows the crushing weight of psychological pain. And his agony, it it was not shameful. His agony was for you that he would be able to bear and know your weakness and he can be with you in yours. Number two, suffering makes us better friends. When I walked through that season of, of pain, I started I started running into people all over the place that had like issues of debilitating pain and, and physical uh, maladies. And I mean, guess what? They had already been there. I was just seeing them all over the place. It was like the, you start shopping for a certain car model and all of a sudden it's everywhere. Uh, I was seeing them everywhere. I was, I was being drawn to them. And I, and I understood in that moment, just as Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, my own suffering made me, made me more equipped to be a better friend. I was able to comfort in the way that I'd been comforted. I think this is why why suffering makes us better friends. It makes us better leaders. It makes us better pastors. It makes us better teachers. It makes us better parents. But even the most thoughtful friend, even the most thoughtful pastor or teacher doesn't hold a candle to the man of sorrows. Number three, Jesus is with you when you feel alone. Jesus' friends were sleeping. This might be the most heart-wrenching moment of his life and his friends are asleep. And he asked them not to be. In his darkest hour, they weren't up for the task. Suffering can really, I think, make us feel alone and abandoned. Sometimes you feel like there's, like, I don't, there's no one I could talk to about this. No one who would get it. No one would understand Maybe sometimes you, you, when you're suffering, you're in the middle of a crowd of your friends, but you still feel alone. Who, who would even understand what I'm going through? You may feel. E- even your spouse won't always be able to understand. We, we aren't meant to perfectly bear every burden for one another. But guess what? Your Savior's with you. Even when you feel like your closest friends are nowhere to be found, Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And don't you also love how patient Jesus is with his friends? Like when he found his disciples sleeping, it doesn't say, and he went over and kicked them. No, he, he wakes them up and he's telling them, hey, don't sleep, get back in prayer. And, and in Matthew's gospel, we even see he has, it seems like he's having compassion on them. He says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
It's going, I, 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 know, I know you probably want to keep praying. Clearly you're exhausted. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is patient with you when you fall asleep? When you should have been a better friend? This doesn't mean we have to write off, or this, this means, amazingly, this means we don't have to write off our friends when they don't support us the way that we wish they, they would. Like we can give them grace because Jesus is with us and because we won't always perfectly be there for them. Number four, Jesus teaches us to pray. Earlier in Luke, Jesus gave us a model and we always, we've referred to it as the Lord's Prayer, this famous model of how to pray. But at Gethsemane, we really see our Lord pray. There are very few actual passages where we get to see the real prayers of Jesus. John 17 is one of the great ones, this long uh, prayer recorded in John. But we, we get this one, maybe his most vulnerable prayer. And I think Jesus's prayer here can keep us out of two, two ditches when it comes to prayer. First, I think there are some of you, who, because, of your, because of the way you understand God's sovereignty, you, you really struggle to ask God for stuff. Like you, you struggle to bring him what you want. Every request that you make to God is kind of couched in something, couched in, in humility, almost as if to say, God, it doesn't really matter what I want. I'm gonna tell you about it, but it, it, you, know, what, what you do what you wanna do, God. Um, and, but I, I'll just say, it does matter. What you, what you desire does matter. Your father has said, ask for it. And here we see the perfect son of God. He's pouring out his heart. He's unafraid to plead with the father for what he wants. And so are, are you better than Jesus? That you should withhold your needs from the father in prayer? Ask your father. Don't be afraid to ask. Second though, I think there's another ditch this keeps us out of it. I think there are some of you who, who you, know, you know the father answers prayers. And praise God for that. But because of this fervent belief, you've maybe bought into a lie that says, oh, it's a cop-out to say, not my will, but yours, Lord. Friends, it's never wrong to submit our will to the Father. It's always okay to, to pray, Lord, this is what I want more than anything. This is what I think would be best, but you're wiser than me. You have the best perspective. So even, even if the right thing is not the thing I want, I trust you. Do your will, not mine. We need both of those things. And then lastly, number five, we don't have to fear the worst. We don't have to fear the worst. Friends, we are certainly going to suffer in this life. But, but know this. Because Jesus faced the worst suffering there is, you don't have to. If you are in Christ, you don't have to. Because of Jesus, we will never face the terror that he faced in the garden. No, Jesus passed that test for us when he went to the cross. He held the cup of God's wrath in his hands and though it buckled him, he said, I will drink it. And so now his death is ours. His righteousness given to us, imputed to us. His victory is ours too. We can overcome now because of Christ. 
We often think of the martyrs who, who, who faced death seemingly undaunted. You know why they could do that? Because they didn't face the worst. Jesus faced the worst. They just faced death. And when we are like them, when we, when we have trusted in Christ and what he's done, you know what death is for us? Death has lost its sting. Death is now gain. Jesus took the sting of death. He drank it all the way down. Satan won't win the day. You will overcome. That doesn't mean you won't buckle. It doesn't mean you won't be afraid, but you may go to your savior who knows your fears. He is with you and he protects you to the end. He will carry you through to the other side because he has already defeated the worst. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we need to believe this. Oh Lord, how we need a rock when things are unstable and unsteady in our lives. Would you be such a rock for us? Would we stand firmly on the unchanging love of Christ? I want to just invite you to pray on your own, to respond to what you've heard of the Lord, to confess where maybe you've not trusted, where you've, where you've worried but not gone to him for consolation, where you've, where you've doubted his love for you. Would you confess that to, to the Lord and ask him uh, to, to show, show himself to you again that you might trust, that you might lean on him in your suffering? Lord, we are weak, but we are so thankful. We are so thankful that you were willing to be weak for us. Father, we praise you that Jesus stood in our place, took all the anguish and terror upon himself so that we might not stand as children, beloved, cared for, free, not faced with the horror of such a grief, but given the hope of a future. Lord, would this love overwhelm us today? We praise you for your kindness through Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.